From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And we may see it by the end of the program. And our hostess, he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, Jack. And yourself? Terrific, thank you. I've got an email here from Patsy. Mm -hmm. And she says, I've heard different priests offer different answers on whether or not Mary is considered to be co-redeemer along with Jesus as redeemer. Is she co-redeemer or not? Is this answer covered in the catechism? Uh, it's not covered in the catechism precisly, um, but it's it's an imply it's it's implied, or you might say that it is even incipient, incipient in other dogmas that the church has taught. This is why there have been numerous occasions of the term uh, in the 20th century by different popes. Uh, John Paul II used it. I don't know if Pope Benedict did or whether Pope Francis has ever done it. In fact, there was in the 90s the possibility in the late 90s that John Paul II might declare this as a dogma, but I think it was con- uh, judged that it was the time was not ripe. This doesn't mean that it's not true, but it means that it would have been uh, difficult to explain even to many Catholics uh, and to non-Catholics. But the idea is simply this, that in the prerogatives of the Mother of God, uh, whom the Father chose uh, to bring to uh, into a life the human nature of our Lord, who was a divine person, hence we call her the Mother of God, there is implied a cooperation in the redemption. So at minimum you can say she cooperated because she said yes. Now if any of us say yes to something, then are we not a participant fully in the thing we say yes to? So parents who say yes to each other and bring forth a child, they are cooperators. In other words, not one, but both of them are cooperating in that. That doesn't mean that there is, uh, you know, not a certain priority in the relationship, either naturally or, or for other reasons. And that would be true with any human project. So God did not set aside our human nature and the order of our nature and even the order of truth itself uh, in order to say, show that, uh, uh, to bring Christ into the world uh, to, for the Incarnation. 
So Mary's yes is the beginning of all uh, of all her levels of cooperation. Now the church has used that term co-redemptrix. If you look in the uh, documents of the Second Vatican Council in Chapter Eight of Lumen Gentium, the document on the church, Mary is referred to as the mediatrix of grace, uh, not mediatrix of all grace with that adjective there, but she is a mediatrix of grace, and that certainly presumes that it is all the graces that come from Christ. So then the question becomes, what to what extent and what is her role precisely? Well, she's not the second person of the Trinity. She's not the one who died on the cross. She's not the one whose merits were infinite because it was a divine person dying in our human nature. Therefore, theologically and logically, her cooperation was secondary. So I, I think the analogy which has been commonly used here is there is in a cockpit of every commercial airplane on the planet a pilot and a co-pilot. Nobody says that the co-pilot has the same authority as the pilot. Somebody is the responsible person. Someone is the prime mover of the activity of that airplane and of that, you know, cockpit staff, the navigators and, 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 and others. So this is the case with the redemption as well. Mary cooperated in an irreplaceable way by the will of God, and we ought to give to her all that is due. Not the primary place, which necessarily belongs to her son, who is the one who died and whose infinite, uh, the value of his divine personhood gave infinite merit to that act. But nonetheless, she can't be separated from, from it either, as some through history and even in our own day would have, have do, and that's relegate Mary to, you know, uh, Mrs. Jane uh, Israel, uh, whom God just sort of plucked out of the backwaters of Judea and, and made into the mother of his son. Not at all. From all eternity, he willed that in willing from all eternity the incarnation. So we can't reduce it, and whether the day will come, will it will raise it from uh, a teaching with a good deal of weight and authority, theological reasoning behind it, to one which is a declared dogma of the Church. That is up to God's providence and uh, the Pope that will make that decision. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Wide open phone lines for you here at the beginning of another Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line. Gary asks, <laughs> here's, a, here's a, a, a misconception. Well, I hate it gone, when you chuckle. <laughs> a misconception gone wild here. Uh, Gary asks, since angels are spiritual beings not subject to the physical laws of the universe, why do they need wings? Well, wings is not, uh, is not a, they are not material anyway, they're spirits. Uh, but in demonstrating or showing in a figure, a symbol, a symbolic uh, bodily form, uh, their nature, the wing has, has, you know, definitely served its purpose. We think of, uh, we think of the bird who has flights and go, who can fly and go everywhere and is, is a spirit, um, lives in the air, the most spiritual material thing that most of us will know. It's gas, it's, it's airy. Uh, and so there's a certain reality, there's a certain symbolism there. 
Uh, the eagle in sacred scripture has been given as the symbolism of the word of God. We see it in the in the four symbols of the gospel writers. St. John is the eagle because his theology soars. So that's why it's, a, it's merely something to impress upon our weak minds, which have trouble conceiving the truly spiritual, because we're a material creature and a spiritual creature at the same time. But for us, it often seems like the material is the more important. And so I think that's a useful symbol in that way, in the same sense that um, conceiving, you know, statues of the saints and even of Christ himself, it calls to mind a reality that is not limited by the artistic representation of the thing itself, but by the real meaning that is given in sacred scripture and in the church's theology about, about that individual, whether it's Christ or whether it's the saints or whether it's the angels. And so looked at it that way, it tells us something about them, but is very, very far from exhausting the reality of the kinds of beings angels are. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. You know, several of our EWTN radio family members are celebrating anniversaries this week, uh, and they include Holy Family Radio in Harrisburg and Lancaster, Pennsylvania, celebrating 11 years on the air with EWTN radio. Congratulations to to, uh, Joe Nibatinsky and his team at WHYF, 7.20 a.m., bringing listeners in Harrisburg and Lancaster solid Catholic EWTN radio for 11 years. Congratulations to all those good folks. Just getting started on a Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line. We would love for you to be part of the program. If you've got a question for our Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, just pick up the phone and give us a call. The numbers are 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986, and it's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. If you're outside of North America, we've got a number for you. It is 1-205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Got a really neat item, a nice holy reminder from EWTN's religious catalog, the Olive Wood Comfort Cross, Jesus Loves You. It's made of olive wood from the Holy Land, and this comfort crucifix is engraved with Jesus' corpus on the front and the words Jesus Loves You on the back. And it's got smooth, rounded edges, which makes it easy to hold in the palm of your hand during times of sickness or trial, and it measures four inches 
in length and width. That's the Olive Wood Comfort Cross Jesus Loves You from EWTN's Religious Catalog, available now at EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping of online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. Only use the code FREE at checkout. We've got a couple of open lines from you, and those are also free. Free for uh, just the phone call, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Hazel. She is in the great Northwest, listening on the EWTN app. Hazel, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hello, Mr. Donovan. Um, Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I was visiting uh, another parish because I'm, like, uh, traveling. And last week, uh, a baby was baptized in the ch- in the church. I'd never seen this kind of baptism before. Uh, this little infant was totally uh, unclothed, and the uh, priest held her by her shoulders and dunked her in the water three times. And I, our head was not covered. I mean, with water. And I'm just wondering, what is a, a immersion baptism supposed to be like well i'm not that familiar with how that's uh done in the church but i think your question gets to the meaning of immersion um generally yeah baptism is done by pouring water which flows across the forehead of the child baptism can be done by necessity on other parts of the body so exact you know you know somebody uh who's Maybe head is mangled in an accident, not to be too gross about it. But, I mean, there can be medical reasons and other reasons why the head can't be baptized. Um, so I don't know what is commonly accepted in there. Water flowing on the body, as immersion would do, obviously, in lift, uh, li- placing the child in the water and out and in the water and out while pronouncing the three names, uh, ha- accomplishes the same flowing of water over the body of the person as does uh, pouring on the on the head. Uh, so I think that element of it would be uh, would be sufficient. The, the 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 whether that's the manner of practicing the baptism of babies, I have not seen that. I've normally seen uh, the parent or maybe the godmother, somebody holding the child as the priest scooped the water out of the font and poured it on the child's head. Uh, so that would be a practical detail. Um, you know, I've not seen it. I'm not familiar with what the pastoral practice is in that regard. Uh, obviously, with an infant, you know, you can't immerse them fully uh, into the font. I'm not exactly sure why you would think it was necessary to immerse them even three-quarters uh, rather than use the pouring. But whether that's legitimate as a pastoral practice, I believe that sounds like the baptism would be fine, however. Does that help, Hazel? Yes, thank you. You're very welcome. If it helps anymore, both of my children were baptized in a method that is just like what Hazel described. Ah, okay. Um, and But what the, what the, it was done at... The, the college church at St. Louis University, uh, St. Francis Xavier, uh, by uh, some members of the Society of Jesus, uh, Father Len Krauss and Father Glenn Miller. And each of them, when they finished doing that, did just with their hand, they each scooped up some water and, and put it over the head 
uh, of the child after they were immersed three times uh, in the the thing. Mm-hmm. And I and I I know at least in on one of those accounts that you know they were both baptized after mass and the whole family was there, so we had a lot of non-Catholic people there, and I think that it was you know as much of a sign to our other right. separated brothers and sisters as much as anything else. To be honest with you. Right, and that, I think, gets to the question of whether it's pastorally accepted. It may not be a question of validity, but if the Church doesn't do a practice, it generally, uh, you know, there's no question about adult immersion. Uh, I mean, that's clearly doable. Uh, I'm not sure, as I said, the, the pastoral practice with an infant and whether the priests you describe felt it was necessary to do the more typical, ordinary, and usual of the pouring over the forehead. Plus, we had a gigantic baptismal font (laughs) 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 that that aided in in the whole thing. Thanks so much, Hazel. We appreciate the question. Next stop for us is Richmond, Virginia. Francis is in Richmond listening on the EWTN app. Francis, welcome to the program. You're on with Colin. Thank you. Uh, Colin, I wanted to ask if at any time during the course of her life our Blessed Mother would have been tempted to commit a sin. Not from her flesh, uh, but like Jesus himself, the, the devil could certainly tempt, and other people could be occasions of temptation, uh, none of which would have been accepted and been resisted thoroughly. Does that help, Lane, or Francis? Yes, yes. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Thank you for the question. We appreciate it. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Laney would like to know, why is the Sacrament of Reconciliation not available to non-Catholics? Well, the reason is it requires belief in the sacrament, which means belief in the power of the keys handed down throughout apostolic succession. Uh, you know, so at that point, you the obvious question is, well, why are you not a Catholic? Uh, this is... This is something which, first of all, the Church has a, uh, a basis or a way, a pathway to get there. First of all, baptism. A what would, uh, the presumption is that everybody who comes into the confessional is a baptized Catholic, has each reached the age of reason, and if they have mortal sin, then their sin is absolved by the absolution. A non-baptized uh, person would have... Would, could not be absolved because they are, they're not baptized. They're not members of the Church. Uh, the, the, the Protestant could be, but generally there has, there has to be a permission to do that and a unique situation. So uh, in wartime, sometimes chaplains will do, if, you know, guys going into battle, you got a thousand guys in front of you uh, to hold a general confession and to give absolution to those individuals. Uh, and the sincerity of the repentance, even of the non-Catholic Christians in there, would seem to be sufficient that that uh, God would grant that. It's nothing we can know, however, although we can presume it, I think. So I think the situations are different there. Uh, I think the most germane question is the first thing I mentioned. Uh, if you believe the, sa- the priest has that power, why are you not then a Catholic? Why do you not? Re- because it's the same power and from the same font, if you will, that the Eucharist is confected, that 
uh, extreme unction, that uh, anointing of the sick is accomplished, that baptism and confirmation and Eucharist together in, in being received into the church is accomplished. So it, it seems to be a dislogic of thinking on a person's part to think that confession, um, you know, on, on almost a magical kind of thinking. No, our approaching the confessional is based on faith, the Catholic faith, and you really need at least the, the basis of that and the membership in the church. But in extraordinary circumstances, yes, the church has the authority to grant the sacraments to non-Catholics, uh, but those uh, circumstances are governed by canon law uh, and have to be to be met. The serious of need, the unavailability uh, of their own minister and other conditions which the Code of Canon Law establishes. You know, it's interesting, Colin. I think it's it's probably just a remnant of concupiscence uh, that we inherited from our first parents, but but we always seem to want to hold on to a little bit of something. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you know, we had a uh, my late wife Susie and I worked in in large scale retail for a long time, and I had a a security person in in one of our places of employment who told me that that if you had a video camera, uh, an, a high definition video of someone stealing a million dollars and making off with it, and you had the video of them spending the million dollars, they would still admit to something less than a million dollars every time. (laughs) There is that tendency, you know, and it's a good point to make, because in the confessional, the truth of the confession matters for the integrity of the confession, because the absolution is dependent upon that integrity of your participation. And if your participation is fraudulent or deficient or holding back knowingly, holding back because you don't remember something, that's one matter. But a kind of fraudulent holding back of sins, that is that the absolution does you no good because your heart's not disposed to be absolved by God, who is ultimately uh, the source through the minister of that absolution. So, yeah, I think that's right. The human ability to fool itself uh, sometimes even <laughs> extends into mm-hmm. the confessional, and ought not in serious matters. Yeah, and 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 I think too, uh, I'd like to hear your your thoughts on this. But um, you know, occasionally I think that there are people that give assent within their person to virtually everything Holy Mother Church teaches, but for some reason they just can't see themselves being Catholic. That, that can probably be true, and that's a, what's called a moral impossibility. Uh, I think a lot of people have gone, gone through that. Uh, I think of the of the great philosopher Mortimer Adler, who was responsible for the great books program and the general editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica and taught at Ch- uh, University of Chicago for years. And, you know, he was a Thomistic philosopher, and he wasn't ashamed of that. He could accept the Thomism. He could accept the Thomistic arguments on everything in the Church. The, the Eucharist and all the other things, but he could not make that step. And he finally came into the church as an Episcopal, or came in uh, into Christianity as by baptism in the Episcopal Church, and then at the very end of his life became a Catholic. Sometimes you can have obstacles, they can be obstacles. This is where the bad example of Catholics, the scandal in the church often comes in. It can be our own... Uh, 
our own formation in our family or in our theological tradition, which has raised polemics against Catholicism and Catholic teaching. There can be a lot of reasons, and I think this is why the Church is very respectful of the consciences of people and where they are in that journey and allowing them to get there. And I, I keep coming back to this point, you know, the journey home shows those stories and how exactly that works as you described and as I just described. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. With your questions for our Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, on EWTN's Open Line Friday. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Several open phone lines for you on a Friday at 833-288-3986. That's the number that Sean used. She is in Atlanta, Georgia, listening on The Quest. Sean, you're on with Colin Donovan. Good afternoon. Um, I hope I can ask this question correctly, because I'm not sure. But anyway, I was talking to the Trinity. Uh, Somehow it morphed into the Trinity. And my son-in-law said um, there was a change with God. And I said, no, it's impossible. He said, well, when Jesus came, there was a change with the Trinity. And I said, "Um, it's impossible for God to change. Mm -hmm. And I told him that um, God was fully fully God, Christ was fully God and fully man, and he never heard of this as a Seventh-day Adventist. Ah, well, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then I told him um, how scriptures um, show that he was fully God, and that's why he was killed. And then I said, well, this was God's plan for all eternity, so when Christ came, there was no change, not even with Jesus. Well, that's when he got frustrated and told me he was through <laughs> with the conversation. <laughs> so, um, wondering, because I said chronologically there was no, you know, there was a change yeah. with us, but not for God, so I don't, I don't know how I could explain that better. Yeah. Well, ask him this question. What do we have, like seven plus billion people on the planet? And most Christians, I don't know what seven-day Adventists claim, most Christians claim there's a spiritual part in man that never existed until our conception, and God breathes a soul, as Scripture says regarding Adam and Eve, and he breathes a soul into you, Sean. He breathed one into me and Jack and our producer, Mike, and everybody else in the world. Is there a change in God? That's the sort of the starting point. The second point is this. It does require, which you clearly demonstrate you know what you're talking about, but he <laughs> clearly doesn't see it. It does require understanding what the is being said about Jesus Christ. And the early church had a particular faith. He was God, he was man. You know, before Abraham came to be, I am, and he even used the divine name given to Moses, which no Jew ever uttered except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement when he went in and prayed before uh, the, the presence of God. He used that, and that is what scandalized him. He said, before Abraham came to be, I am. In other words, he was eternal. Now, what in Christ was eternal? Was it his body? 
No, we know where that came from. Was it his soul? No, that is a creature just like his body. What is it? It's the person, the second person of the Trinity animated him. There is no human person in Christ. That's all the church is claiming, that he's fully God, no change in God. He's fully man. A creature was united to the second person of the Trinity. So in these wars in the 3rd and the 4th century, or 4th and 5th century, rather, uh, a word was uh, created, the hypostatic unit, uh, union. That describes a word that means person. It's the personal union of Christ's body and soul with the second person of the Trinity. And one of the great theologians of, of church history, St. Thomas Aquinas, explained that God is not limited. Yes, we only know that Jesus Christ is the, such a son of God. But we, God is not prevented from doing this as many times as he wants, assuming different natures, the angel nature, for example. But he hasn't done it. So there is no change in the eternity of God. From the philosophical point of view, going back to the pagan philosophers like Aristotle, it was understood that uh, God is infinite and eternal act. In fact, that's the only way they conceived of him, that he had to be an infinite cause of everything else we see around us. That means at the beginning of creation all the way to the end of creation, that God is continuously causing that. Now, he's not changed by that cause any more than he is by the incarnation, any more than he is by the creation of the infusion of the soul in, in our bodies, at our conception. And there's no change in God in that. He is continuously uplifting and holding and maintaining in existence the universe without himself changing, because he is that infinite and eternal cause. That is his nature, it's not a limited nature in any extent. His essential being is that infinite and eternal act, that I am that Moses was told was his divine name. Anything else about, his, about that is accidental. And this is even true when we get to heaven. Our beatitude will come from the vision of God, as St. Paul tells us when we see him face to face. That's where our beatitude will come from. But we will accidentally have happiness in the fact that our bodies and united are, our souls are reunited, that we, our bodies share in the glory of our souls, and it won't make us any, you know, essentially happier, but accidentally many things can be associated with our own eternal happiness uh, after death with God including that time in the future when at the general resurrection our bodies will be united to us. There will be no essential change in our beatitude. We're already with God. Our souls are with God. But our bodies now will share in that. But our essential, essentially we're as happy as before. But yet now accidentally we have this, this uh, union of our souls with our bo bodies with our souls. So there's a lot of heavy-duty theological thinking going back even to Aristotle in the 2300s BC, uh, certainly in the whole Christian tradition that arrived at, at this point. Uh, and, you know, it, it's unfortunate that most non-Catholic Christian traditions have had to set aside something of that history in order to get to some particular conclusion that they and they alone uh, reach.
So you you can try with your son-in-law, maybe get him to listen to to this explanation on on a podcast or on our uh, on our YouTube channel or or elsewhere. Um, but th- that's basically it. God is always the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And uh, but accidentally, if you don't understand that correct, it is something that doesn't change his essence. Yes, he united with the body and soul created to be Jesus Christ, and he united personally uh, there. And with each of us, he holds us in existence by his power without any essential change. So it's a complex matter to be sure, but maybe if he hears this and thinks it through, he'll, he'll see the reasonableness of it. And, Sean, you can have him listen to this. Uh, the Encore airs at 10 p.m. Eastern time of EWTN's Open Line Friday. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call now and fill up these phone lines, or I'm going to tell jokes. <laughs> Marvin no, is next call. up. Please. Marvin is up next. He's in Orchard Park, New York, watching on Facebook Live. Marvin, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. I'm almost tempted to say a joke rather than answer my question. <laughs> well, you've got a good, clean Christian joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the question that I'm sort of reluctant to ask, even because of the millions of people, including myself, who say the St. Gertrude prayer. Right, yeah. And also because Jesus may not like me asking it. Uh, but here's the question. I have read that Jesus has said that the St. Gertrude prayer is the most effective prayer to be said for the souls in purgatory. However, I also know that there are millions and millions of people around the world that believe that if they say the St. Gertrude prayer, a thousand souls will be released from purgatory. Now, my question is, and somebody because time is of the essence, somebody listening may be able to answer it. Uh, What book and what chapter does St. Gertrude say that anyone who says the Gertrude prayer will release or be responsible for the release of a thousand souls from purgatory? Uh, That's actually not germane to the question. Because in the 1940s, these kinds of questions were answered by the the Holy See, by Rome. Uh, One element of it is that the validity of the connection of that with St. Gertrude, and there's another set of prayers that do something similar, uh, is not established. So first of all, you have the validity of the claims. Secondly, the the claim that as X number of souls uh, constitutes a superstition, uh, just as you've seen probably many times, I know I have over the years, although not recently in the last decade or so, you know, people leaving uh, a number of novena prayers in the, in the pews, and they say, say this prayer every day for nine days and leave copies of it in the pews during those nine days, and your prayer will be answered. Any kind of absolution, absolutism like that, the Church firmly rejects. So the Church has ruled on that, and I don't have any more, let's say, resources to determine the validity of those prayers 
of those claims, at least, than certainly Holy Mother Church does and the Holy See did in the 1940s when it made this judgment. What I will say is this, that I think the general basis of the prayers which deal with the passion of Christ seem to be unobjectionable. What the biggest objection to it is not that the prayers are not pious prayers, that we could say them uh, for the relief of the souls in purgatory. They're always happy to have us pray anything for their relief. So that's great. That's good. It's the claims about what that prayer will do with the kind of specificity and absolutism that is usually what gets a ringing no out of the Holy See and as it did in this case. So the book doesn't matter. The church doesn't accept such a claim. Next up for us is Avon, Indiana. Teresa is a first-time caller in Indiana listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Teresa, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thanks a lot. I was just listening to you, and mm-hmm. and I always thought that the way that we were like God, in the, made in the image and likeness of God, was through our soul, and I assumed then the soul was spirit and he is spirit. So if that's not true, then how are we made in the image and likeness of God? Well, you're, you're correct. That's how the Church says, because God doesn't have a body. So the things in our human soul, as in the angels, who are also persons. Remember, God is, is, is a personal being. The angels are personal beings. We and per, our personal beings, uh, our dog Isabel that passed away a few years ago, was not a personal being. He was a mater- she was a material creature with, with a body. So what is godlike in us is the same thing that is godlike in the angels the power to know and the power to love so we speak of christ in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god that's the second person of the trinity the the knowledge of god within god himself and the holy spirit the spirit of love is the love of god It's the ability to know the truth and to love the good which makes us like God. Now, there is a sense which I believe that can the unity of man, the angels have that, of course, and we have that in our souls. But the human body, if you think about it, is very suited to what we do as human beings, what we consider normal activity. If 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 you Look at what flows from man's ability to reason and to know its art, its music, its civilization, its politics and economics and philosophy and many things all come from our ability to know. This is certainly the fruit of the spiritual gift of of the intellect and the will. But even our bodies, I'm, I'm sort of holding up my ten fingers now, even our bodies are, and walking upright, all these things are remarkably suited to the way we live in the world and what we're able to accomplish because that cannot have been happenstance. That was the will of God. It had to have been because this, our body is suited to the gift of the soul. So we are the only material creature so suited for intellect and will. And that's why we have it. So 
in the same way as I just was talking about the, the glory of, of and the happiness and beatitude of eternal life overflowing into our body, we could say that the soul in our body, because it's a union, it's not separate, it's a complete union, there is no part of me that isn't my soul, there is no part of me that isn't my body. There's something mysterious in that connection, uh, as there is in the creation of spiritual beings like the angels. Something mysterious in that reality. So we are one creature. We are not two halves sort of slapped together. We are body and soul completely through and through. And that uniqueness of that image of God in our souls is certainly reflected in, in all of us, in our personalities, in our person. Uh, and, and in our bodies. And I think that's a beautiful reality and a great gift from God that we have to be um, uh, terribly, terribly grateful for. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out Beyond Damascus. Saturday night at 8 Eastern, the guys are going to talk about being consumed in the Eucharist. That's Beyond Damascus, Saturday night, 8 Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Michael in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on the EWTN app. Michael, welcome to the program. You're on with Colin Donovan. An honor to be with you, Jack and Colin. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That dunamis power that we read, you know, with both Jesus' teaching and Acts of the Apostles, how normal should we anticipate that, <laughs> like he said, uh, you're going to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, or is that power, I mean, I, I'm trying to dis- distinguish with my uh, separated brothers and sisters how there's a greater grace that's activated dunamis power, but yet they'll tell me, well, you guys don't really, as Catholics, activate your dunamis power, so to speak, because we just say more entrenched in obligation in our tradition, and I'm thinking, well, maybe it's because we just never really saw it as normal to want to pray over people to see this power activated. Is there something that we're lacking as Catholics in that area? Uh, no, that, I mean, the explanation you're given is is what's lacking. Uh, there are two kinds of uh, of origins of things. The greater origin is the origin that Christ had. He was God. He was perfectly holy. And so the acts that he did was came from the union with the Father. You look in the lives of the saints. For most people, the most remarkable instant, uh, instance of that is uh, St. Padre Pio and the miraculous uh, many things that he did healings and exorcisms. He was seen to fly through the air by uh, American pilots who tried to bo- drop bombs on San Giovanni Rotundo, where his friary was in the night during World War II. And they saw this monk uh, in front of their plane in the air, this friar, they called him a monk, uh, in front of their plane, and their, their bombardier couldn't get the bombs out of the bomb bay. Um, so that's, you know, that's a pretty remarkable thing. How did Padre Pio, how did St. Anthony of Paola, who walked across the Straits of Messina because a boatman wouldn't give him a ride, uh, who stopped a boulder that was going to crush the men who were building his, his first uh, monastery for the community he founded called the Minims, 
uh, you know, and throughout history, you just read the lives of the saints and you see these remarkable things. They got that there by an ever greater correspondence to the will of God. And I just love this one formula that the saints always do the will of God, and at a certain point, God does their will, because they would never ask anything not corresponding to his will. And you see that in the greatest saints, when with such complete confidence, not stopping to think, well, Jesus, will you do this if I say it? They simply did it. You see it in the apostles. There is an innate, there is a a holiness there, the power of God working through holiness, united to that soul, God himself in that soul. There are other kinds of gifts, and St. Paul talks about that in the charismatic gifts in chapter 12 of Corinthians. These are gifts that are not given to the individual for the individual. Holiness is something we get to by fidelity, by, by striving against the weaknesses of the body, by spiritual acts of drawing closer to God through prayer and the sacraments and so on. That's a labor. That's that ascent of Mount Carmel that uh, John of the Cross talks about. You climb that path and you get more and more like God because you are more and more, you know, intensely, intensely oriented to him. You're getting, trying to get to that top where God is. But the charismatic gifts are not given for the individual. They're given for others. They're given for the church, prophecy and healing. We see those in our time as well. But they're charismatic gifts. They're given when God chooses to give them. And so there's no predicting of that. I would say there's almost a greater predicting that the prayers of the saints will be answered than there is that a particular individual, uh, you know, you said to them, well, you know, can you ask God to do this for me? I think if they answered their, was able to answer that prayer in the affirmative, you'd probably take that as, you know, as a, you know, they're a holy person. It could be a word of knowledge, as they're sometimes called. That too. So there may not be, in some cases, a way to distinguish between the two things. And the same gifts can be in the holy pe- in holy people. And so one analysis I saw several decades ago, or heard several decades ago, is that for most of the period of the church, when the church became institutionalized after the Roman Empire said, we give up, we legalize you, you know, go and do your thing, until our day, they were dormant or found primarily in the saints. I think we're seeing more flowering in our day because look around us. We are getting more and more like the old Roman Empire before its conversion. And I think the more that happens, the more we will see those gifts more generally. But I think mechanical explanations that if you do this or say this prayer or, or somebody uh, prays over you, you necessarily will get what you want. That becomes... God, give me what I want, not give me what you want to give. And I think there's always that danger of pride in that. So that's probably in some cases the case. In other cases, it's people who are completely open, and so God does give them uh, such gifts without having to do the hard work of sanctity, but because he sees the need in the world today and he wishes to give those gifts. Next up is Kathy in Southern Colorado, listening on the Ave Maria radio app. Kathy, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Um, It occurred to me to ask whether at the Incarnation Jesus got his own guardian angel. Um, He probably got a veritable flock of adoring angels. Uh, I... 
I mean, that that's almost uh, uh, an un, undemonstrable uh, question from Scripture. Uh, His Holiness would seem that he didn't need it. Uh, and I think we see in various places in, in Scripture where he's comforted, such as in the garden. Uh, and so we know that the angels were probably constantly around him. But in the strict sense in which we mean that he needed a guardian angel, um, you know, that's, uh, I guess it seems a little bit superfluous in his case. But there is no, I don't think, any definitive answer to that in, in theology that I'm aware of. I would tend to say he didn't need one, but he probably had many around him because who he was, many angels because of who he was. Uh, Daniel wants to know, Colin, if the Eucharist is necessary for salvation. It is. Uh, it's called a necessity uh, of means, uh, in, of instrumental means. In other words, if you are aware that the Eucharist is necessary for your salvation, then yes, you have a conscience obligation. Uh, we only know what Scripture tells us. We can't know what God himself will do. Um, it's because Scripture tells us that the Church required, has an Easter duty, that at least once a year we should receive the Blessed Sacrament. And we know from the lives of the saints that there is, uh, uh, there, obviously there is great glory for us in eternity from receiving devoutly and well and with attention and not distraction and casually and, you know, hands in the pockets and just, you know, well, I'm here because it's a fellowship or something. No. We do it because we love him, we want him, we are adoring him, we thank him, and so on. There is great merit in that. But as, uh, as to who who is not in the church or not receiving the Eucharist, uh, God doesn't punish those who, through no fault of their own, don't follow some positive commandment. So that is a positive commandment. Uh, do this. If you don't know you have to do that, God is not holding you accountable. And uh, exactly who those individuals are is beyond our job description, and we don't know. Well, on behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Have a great weekend. Until we get together then, God bless.